Our Bible reading tonight is taken from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm going to read the 10 verses of the chapter. The words will come up on the screen and we would encourage you to follow the Bible reading. Be good of you to get a copy of the scriptures for yourself and read your own personal copy along with hearing the word of God. And may the Lord bless you as you read and hear the word of God tonight. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God word is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. My text tonight is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3. And my theme this evening is entitled, Biblical Evidence of Genuine Conversion. Now there has been times in the past when I've been counseling certain individuals during my pastoral ministry here in Carrie Duff FPC, that I've had to question, at least in my mind, whether some of these individuals were genuinely and truly converted to Christ. See, many claim to be believers, claim that there was a time in their life when they trusted Christ as Lord and Savior. Yet the reality is that their life doesn't appear to back up that claim. Someone has rightly asked, if you were hauled off to court, would there be enough evidence to convict you as a true and genuine Christian? Or if I put the question another way, how do I know that I am truly converted? What are the main evidences or the main marks to look for in light of true Conversion. This is not merely an academic exercise. I want us to go beyond that 
because this involves your and mine eternal destiny. The Bible teaches that the Lord knows them that are his, but the same scripture also says, but let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. And you see, the church at Thessalonica, to whom the Apostle Paul was writing, highlights the transforming and life-changing power of the gospel in the lives of many people. The city of Thessalonica was known for its idolatry, its iniquity, its unholy living. It was a place for vice, not a place for virtue. It was a pagan city. The multitude had no concern for God or the things of God. Think of a city full of pagan people with pagan practices. And yet into that very pagan place, God comes sovereignly and demonstrates his mighty power by regenerating the sinner and awakening them to newness of life in Christ and bringing them together to form what we call a New Testament church. And you can read about the formation of this church at Thessalonica in Acts 17. As a result of Paul preaching the gospel, many were born again, became true believers. And they formed themselves, and I put it in the words of the late Dr. Kearns, into a vibrant, victorious, and virtuous church. Not a perfect church, but a, a positive, outlooking church. A, a, a preaching church, a, a practicing church, a church that was an example of the power of God at work in the life. Thessalonica was a most unlikely place for a church. And isn't it sad that many think that this or that area, this or that town, or this or that city is too dark and too depraved and too difficult for a work of God to be done? It's impossible for God to work. It's too hard-hearted. People are forgotten. Our God is able. Our God is willing. Our God, the God of the Bible, is unlimited in power. When the Apostle Paul came preaching, who did he preach? He preached Christ. What did he preach? The gospel of Christ. Listen to these words. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 for after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them the belief. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The Apostle Paul came saying, Thus and thus saith the Lord. The Apostle Paul expounded the Scriptures. The Apostle Paul exalted the person and work of Christ to the glory of God. And a multitude of precious souls were gloriously saved. Remember tonight that it's the gospel that creates the church. And remember tonight that in turn then the church, because its vibrancy and its victory and its virtue 
It spreads the gospel of free grace. And it's the grace of God in the gospel that then shapes the Christian life and brings forth the evidences of the life-changing, life-transforming power of God. Far too often we limit the Lord. Far too often we're full of doubt and unbelief because of this place or that place being full of a pagan lifestyle. And we think, well, people's living in a cesspool of iniquity with no time or regard for God of the gospel. These people are dead in sin. These people are blind to God. These people are deaf to his voice. It's a hostile place. And yet far too many give up. But Paul didn't give up. Because Paul in Thessalonica could set forth the evidence of new converts who were saved and now serving the Lord who were going on and through with God, so much so that the Apostle Paul gave thanks for them. He he mentioned them in his prayers. Notice what he says in verse 3, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, the patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Notice the, the evidences, the three marks of genuine conversion amongst them. Three graces are three qualities that are evidence of a true work of grace in the soul that helped to display that this was a genuine New Testament church community. There was the work of faith, there was the labor of love and patience of hope, and it was all in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we want to think about tonight. The biblical evidences of genuine conversion. Think of the evidence of true faith. Think of the words, remembering without ceasing your work of faith. You see, genuine faith in Christ is a faith that converts. The true Christian is saved by faith. Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and not not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And true faith is the gift of God in the new birth implanted in the soul by the Holy Spirit. It's not something that's natural to us, not something we possess. Now we do have a natural faith, faith to sit in the chair, that when we sit and place our weight on it, that it's not going to fall apart. Faith that when we get out and jump into our car and turn the key, that the engine will start, the car won't blow up. We have faith when we come into our houses on a dark night and we put our hand to the electric switch in the wall and put it on, that we're not electrocuted. You see, that's a natural faith. But natural faith is not a true saving faith. It's a faint reflection of true faith. True saving faith is a gift of God. Our shorter catechism asks the question, what is faith in Jesus Christ? It gives the answer, faith in Christ is a saving grace, whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation, as he has offered to us in the gospel. It was the Apostle Paul that said in the book of Galatians, in Galatians um, chapter 2 and verse 16, uh, this is what he was able to say. He said this, knowing 
that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. In other words, Christ is the object of our saving faith. We're not justified by the works of the law, doing self-righteous acts, Certainly not by our own self-righteousness, for we have none. They're all as filthy rags in the sight of God. Not by our good deeds. Not by religious practices or ceremonies. The Bible teaches, Romans 1 and 17, a very important truth. The just shall live by faith. And those words are repeated uh, four times in the Scriptures. Is it not also written in Romans 10 and 17 that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You see, true saving faith tonight is not just a decision of the moment. Now, it includes making a decision for Christ, but it's not a decision for the moment. It's not merely a temporary thing. True saving faith is the principle of a whole life. We live the Christian life by faith in Jesus Christ. In John 3 and 16, we read the words, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That word believeth is in the present continuous tense. It means I have believed. It means I am believing. And it means I shall keep on believing. I shall continue to believe. You see, people today say to us as preachers, I have my faith. But what does that mean? Faith in who? Faith in what? What is the object of your faith? When the Apostle Paul came to Thessalonica, into that pagan place, he preached the gospel. He presented Jesus Christ in his personal work. And the Bible says in Acts 17 verses 3 and 4, and some of them believed. What does that mean? That means they exercised faith in Christ. They trusted in him alone for salvation. So I ask tonight, I press at home, you who are listening to me, who are, what are you trusting in? I, I, I pray that you're not trusting in the church. Because the free Presbyterian church won't save you. In fact, we'll ask the question, which church saves? And the answer's none. Don't trust the pastor. Don't trust the priest. Certainly don't trust the pope. Because the Bible says, neither is there salvation in any other. For there's no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Don't trust in religious ceremonies or duties. Don't trust your fasting or your prayers or your almsgiving. You see, here's the evidence of true faith. A true faith is a faith that converts us to Christ. But the evidence of true faith is not only a faith that converts, it's a faith that continues. You see, true faith that's the gift of God implanted in the soul at regeneration is a, is a living faith. It's an ongoing faith. True faith continues to be seen even in the midst of trials and troubles, in the midst of hostile persecution, in the midst of dreadful opposition. The true Christian 
who is genuinely converted, he continues and endures through faith saying, I believe God. I will trust in him. You see, many today who profess the name of Christ, they have no evidence of a continuous faith. They have no evidence of an increase in faith. They have no evidence of the gracious ability to trust the Lord, especially when their world falls apart, especially when things are going wrong all around them. True saving faith is a faith that's continuous. It's a present, up-to-date reality in the life. It's wonderful when a man is truly saved and the guilt of sin is removed and the power of the blood supplied and he's become an inheritor of eternal life and he's got the assurance that he belongs to the Lord and he's bound for heaven and home. But of that man, that man has true faith, the faith that converts him. That true faith will continue to impact on his whole life and character. You see, the whole of the Christian life is a life of faith. And that individual, that man or that woman, lives that life, the Christian life, in a vibrant, in a victorious, and in a virtuous kind of way. They not only live by faith, but they listen by faith. Think of the words, have faith in God. How can we have faith in God? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I think of Samuel, the boy in the temple. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. We ought to be like Samuel. We should pray, Lord, lend me Samuel's ears. And the true Christian not only lives by faith and listens by faith, because God has spoken and God speaks to us out of the pages and the words of Holy Scripture. But the true believer also labors by faith. Think of this word. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith. All you do. All you attempt to do. How is it done? It's done by and through faith. You see, it has an impact in their daily life. It's an impact in their home life, their business life. It's an impact in their farm and their factory. It impacts them in the face of persecution and opposition. For what they do in that day, they trust in the Lord. They trust in his person. They trust in his power. They trust in his provision. They trust in his providences. They, they trust in his promises. The Christian life is a walk of faith. And it works by faith. It witnesses by faith. I was thinking of our young people. I was thinking of their mental health. You know, the Bible says in Isaiah 26 and 3, Thou will keep them in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed in thee, because he trusteth in thee. There's that faith element. Do you know if you go to a psychologist, a psychologist will tell you that you need someone to believe in. You need someone to love. You need someone to look forward to. It's not interesting. The Bible's bang up to date. There is such a thing as a true psychology. That someone is Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That someone is 
Jesus Christ. You can love the Lord Jesus Christ. You can look forward to Christ coming in his power and glory. Men need Jesus Christ tonight. And the good news of the gospel proclaims him. Can you say tonight that you've found him? Have you faith in Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you know God in Christ tonight? Have you trusted in his person and work? Have you embraced his promises? Have you experienced his presence? Do you know anything about the exhibition of his power in your life? Do you know God can take a wicked, drunkard, a man who's a thief and a robber, and God can make that man to be a glorious child of God? That's what he did in the life of George Mueller. Was George Mueller not a man who lived by faith after he was converted from a life of wicked, drunken, thieving? Ray, whenever he was converted, he, 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 he centered his life in Christ. And he was comforted by the fact that he was in Christ and he knew Christ. And he had a love for Christ. There's the first evidence, the evidence of true faith. Here's a second evidence of genuine conversion. There's the expression of love. Look at our text. It says, and labor of love. What does that mean? It means a love for the Savior. A love for spiritual things. Is it not true that love is shaped and formed by what we love? Before men were converted, they loved things and did things that they now hate and despise. But now they've no more attraction for those things. Why? Because the love of God is shed abroad in their heart by the Holy Ghost. And they have no love now or time for, no attraction for the things that they, that they formerly loved and cherished. Have I asked a question tonight? How much do you love the Savior? You see, these... Believers at Thessalonica, they love Jesus Christ. Think of the words, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is your heart fixed in him? Is it centered in him in an intense, passionate way? Do you live a life devoted to Christ? Can you say, my Jesus, I love thee, my Savior, thou art? How much do we really love him? You see, the first great commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul and mind and strength. Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 to 40. Here's a summary of the law. Love to God. And if we love the Lord truly, we'll love our neighbor as we love ourselves. The Old Testament is branded as a religion of law. The New Testament is looked upon as a religion of love. That, that's rubbish. That's utter lies. Because the Old Testament summary of the law is this. Love to God first. A heart that loves the Lord first and foremost. It was the great Bishop of Hippo, Augustine, in the 4th century that said, I hate my own soul if I did not find my heart loving God. And here's a question tonight. Do we love the Lord like this? Is there anything that replaces love in our hearts for him? Is there anything that comes before the Lord and us. If, it, if there is anything, it's an idol in the heart. You see, if you love the Lord tonight, you'll love the Lord Jesus Christ, whom the Father sent, whom the Father gave. Over there in 1 Corinthians, 
and chapter um, 16 and verse 22, we read, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha. In other words, see, a true believer who says they love Jesus Christ can't say they love Jesus Christ if they don't believe in Christ. You can't believe in Christ and not love Jesus Christ. It's impossible. You, you can't say you love for Christ if you have no faith in him. Um, isn't that something that cuts across thousands of professions tonight? Because here's one of the essential graces. If there's evidence of faith, faith operates or works by love. There's the expression of love. And that love is love for Christ. Not the customs of the age. Not the celebrities of the world. Not, not the crazes of the world. Not the course of this world. But a love for Christ. Let me tell you something else. If you have a love for Christ, you have a love for the Scriptures. The Word of God will be precious. The people in Thessalonica loved the Scriptures. They searched them daily. Remember the psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 97, Oh, how I love thy law. He says in 113 of the same chapter, Psalm 119, verses 113, I hate vain thoughts, but thy law do I love. In the same psalm, he said in verse 163, I hate and abhor lying, but thy law do I love. Did the Lord Jesus not say, if a man loves me, he will keep my commandments? Remember over in John chapter 14, we read these words in John 14 and verse 23. The Lord Jesus said this, if a man loved me, he will keep my words and my father will love him. And we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Verse 24. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings. And my word which ye hear is not mine but the Father's which sent me. Do you see the connection? You see here's another evidence. Another gracious element of a vibrant New Testament life. You give attention to the word of God. And I ask tonight every Christian who's listening to me. How much do you love your Bible? Do you daily read the scriptures? Do you study the words? Do you meditate upon them? Do, do you rely on those words to give you strength and sustenance on the journey? You see, here's the expression of love, this laboring of love. It's a love for the Savior first. It's a love for the scriptures. They can't be separated. It's also a love for the saints. Remember what we read there in John chapter 13, and in the verse 34 and verse 35, the Lord Jesus taught this to his own disciples in the upper room. He said, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one for another. Loving the Lord's people. Having a love for godly company. I often think of Ruth. Her own statement to her mother-in-law, standing in the borders between Moab and Israel. She's a widow now. She's a broken-hearted widow. She's known many tears. Her husband's dead. She's no husband. She's no prospect of another husband. She's a broken-hearted widow whose friend, Orpah, her sister-in-law, has gone back. And, and she, as a broken-hearted widow, was given the opportunity to do the same. And what does she say? Thy people will be my people. 
Thy God and my God. Where thou live, I will live. Where thou die, I will die. I want to be numbered amongst your people. I want your God to be my God. And you see, I worry about many young people tonight. Professed to be saved. Claimed to believe in Christ. And yet they have no love. Real love for the Savior. Or the Scriptures. But they have no love for the saints. They have no love for God's people. And that's a tragedy. They don't want to be in the company of other godly young people. Hebrews 10 and 25 says, Forsaking not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. You see, there has to be a love for the brethren. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 14, we read, We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. Here's one of the tests. Here's one of the evidences of a, a quickening to life, the evidence of the grace of God, the evidence that God actually dwells in us because we have a love to the brethren. Hereby, verse 16 of the same chapter, hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. and We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. You see, if we've properly understood a love to the saints, then in our interpersonal relationships, we'd refuse to make a mountain out of a molehill. We would treat God's people in a gracious, loving way. We'd remember that love covers a multitude of sins, that we're all sinners, that we're all flawed, that we all make mistakes, and that's true of the preacher. But you know, often we pay lip service to that. We, we only tolerate many saints. There's others that we hate and slander and loathe. We would kick them when they're down. We want to humiliate them. We want to assassinate their character. We would bury them if we could. Do you know, sadly, many drunkards treat their dogs better than many of God's people treat others who belong to the same household of faith, who have the same Father, the same Savior, who are born of the same Spirit. Can it be right tonight? I asked the question. I asked, is it pleasing to God? Does it not vex and grieve and quench Him? Is it not sin that we need to repent of? You see, all this backbiting, this murmuring, this complaining, this gossiping, this slander, it's wrong. There ought to be a love for the saints. And could I tell you also, there's a love for sinners. Could I ask tonight, carried off FPC congregation in particular, do we have a love for sinners? The Apostle Paul did. Let me explain. The sinners that were hounding him and persecuting him, his fellow Jews that hated him because he'd got converted, who were hot in his heels, who pledged that they would eat and drink nothing until he was dead. And what did he say about them? This is what he said in the book of Romans in Romans chapter 9, listen to these words. For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Romans 9 and verse 3. He's saying this truth in Christ. He's not lying. His conscience bears him witness in the Holy Ghost. He had great heaviness and continual sorrow in his heart for these individuals. What he's really saying, Lord, if it cost me my life, even if it cost me my very soul to see my fellow countrymen saved, Lord, I would pay it. You see, it's essential tonight that true love produces action. 
You think of the little things that love does. You, you think of the love that motivates us to win the loss for Christ. The love of Christ constrains us. Did you ever hear the name of Mary Slessor? Who went to the African continent to win the people there. She was a lady from Scotland. And this was one of her little sayings. You can read it in her book. Love equals to live for. You see, there's a labor of love. Think of that. Love equals to live for. What are you living for? Because what you live for is what you love. Did you know that Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, that there was a Chinese mob were involved in the murder of his dear wife? Did he cease his labor? Did he cease his love for the Chinese people? No, he wanted to reach the people who wanted to murder his wife. You see, what made the difference in the life of Mary Slessor, the life of Hudson Taylor? It's love that makes the difference. And that's a, a mark of grace, folks. In the hardest of circumstances, in the most difficult of situations, you want to witness for Christ. So I ask the question tonight, what do we really love as professing Christians? What is your heart set on? What do you love the most? Do you love the Savior? Do you love the scriptures of truth, the word of God? Do you love the saints of God so that you're willing to let love cover a multitude of sins? That you treat your brother and sister because they're in Christ and you'll do them no harm, you'll want to help them? Do you have a love for the sinner? The man that wants you dead and out of the way. Do you have a love for the sinner tonight? You see, here's the evidence of true conversion. It's the evidence of true faith. But it's also the expression of true love. Let me close with the endurance of true hope. Here's the third evidence. The text says... And patient of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Some of the Thessalonians ended up being martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. Many others were imprisoned and suffered for the Lord. But they endured, high Through faith in him and their love for him. Oh, the devil was mad. They had to endure hardship. Many trials came, but what helped them to endure? It was the sure and certain hope. The Bible says they were patient in hope. You see, there, there's power in hope. You think of the psychologists of the day dealing with mental health problems, telling young people you need someone to believe in or something. You need someone or something to love. You need something or someone to look forward to. And I want to say tonight that someone, that something is Christ. And oh, if you can believe in Christ and you can love Christ with your heart, then you can look forward to his personal return. You can look forward to the day of resurrection glory because this world is not your final home. You're not here forever. Remember the psalmist said, not only the Lord is my shepherd, but he said, but surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is a certain hope. It's not a blind hope. This is a comforting hope. 
One day, we who are in Christ, who live for Christ, through the strength of Christ, go to be with Christ, which is far better. And this is a a changing hope. Because one day, the suffering will be over. And it will be absent from the body. And present with the Lord. Do you know many tonight have a profession? Terry Duff and beyond. Towns and villages of our province. You know, they have no real knowledge of Christ as Lord and Savior. They have no real saving faith in Him. They have no real love for Christ. They have no real assurance or prospect for the future. And I'm calling on you tonight. That's why I've entitled the sermon, not the qualities of a New Testament church, but the biblical evidences of genuine conversion, because the church is the people. And the people in Thessalonica, they had genuine biblical evidences of true conversion. And here it is, the evidence of true faith. A faith that converted them, a faith that continued to trust in Christ despite what come their way. It was expressed in their love for the Savior, the Scriptures, the saints, sinners all around them. And there was the endurance of hope. They were patient in hope in the Lord Jesus Christ that was certain, that was comforting, and that was in a changing world. What assurance and what hope have you got? There's a difference between a profession and a possession. And I urge you tonight to examine your heart. Look into your soul and ask yourself, have I got real faith in Christ? Have I got a love for Christ? Have I got the assurance and prospect of hope? Sure and certain. The Lord bless you tonight. Thank you for listening.